How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. have a guest as our first guest of Locked on NBA, probably has to be Kevin Pelton, our most frequent kind of mentioned, talked about guest. Kevin Pelton is ESPN insider, stats guru, NBA expert, and he and I go back many, many years back to when he was like a 19-year-old punk and like stats guy, I think. So for those who are new to Locked on NBA, I'm David Locke. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm currently the radio voice of the Utah Jazz. I've been in the NBA for over 20 years, which I don't like to admit because it makes me really old. But that's a striking reality for me. So I come with that, and we'll have these kind of fun conversations. And Kevin and I usually do this about oh, quarterly, and we're a little late on quarterly. We're closer to halfway through the NBA season. Kevin, welcome. <laughs> After that intro, I don't know how I follow that up. We always debate each time I'm on this episode how old I actually was when we met. What were you, like 19, 20, 21? I was 20. You were still at school, right? Yes. And you were smarter than all of us then? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that about myself. I'll say it for you. The number one overriding storyline to the first 35 games, so two-fifths of the NBA 15-16 season is? I mean, it has to be the Warriors, doesn't it? They've got two losses. Is there? Is there? I guess I was looking more than yes. That is the number one. Sorry, okay, around, but I mean, I was kind of like trend. yes. Is there a trend? Is there something going on? What's the? It, it may be the warrior, the imitation of the Warriors. Well, no, I think what it is actually is the fact that there are four teams with a legitimate chance of winning the championship, and maybe only three, and that's a really small number for this point in the season. And I think that's going to impact how the other twenty-seven teams handle the rest of the season, and in particular the trade deadline. I think that's the story to me. And so that leads to a question on the Warriors and the Spurs, who have these differentials that are so incredible. Are the Warriors and Spurs really historically great right now? Or is the reality that while the bottom of this league is not as bad as it has been in the past, that has actually left a mammoth gap between the three or four teams that are championship contenders. I think Oklahoma City probably deserves to be in that conversation. So the four. And then there is just a drop-off. I mean, I, I think Dallas truly might be the fifth-best team in the NBA because I'm not convinced that any of the second-best teams in the East are that good because it's Chicago was that team for a while. Boston was that team in the wild. It was the second-best team in the East. They're now 500. The Knicks are as good as Boston record-wise and beat them last night when we're holding, as we hold this conversation. So, I mean, I'm actually not entirely sure that I don't think Dallas is the fifth-best team in the NBA, and Dallas is, is, is miles away from those other four teams. So are Golden State and San Antonio as good as their differential looks, or is it really a case that there's this gigantuan drop but from the top four to the next 18? Well, first off, I would say the Clippers are probably... Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, sorry. Yeah, I I think you were missing them. So the sixth best team in the league. Yeah, I mean, it's a little tough to separate those two things from each other, and maybe on some level it doesn't even matter because it's not like the league as a whole has gotten worse from last season. So 
you know, if there's only so many wins to go around, the Warriors and Spurs being as good as they are in Cleveland when healthy, uh, probably also belonging in that class, is going to leave less wins for the rest of the league. And it's, But it is kind of exacerbated, I think, by the fact that this year there is no – the second tier is only maybe Oklahoma City. And there, then it's a step down to the third tier, maybe even the fourth tier. There might be a few tiers in there in between. Well, I think that's, I guess, what I was trying to say. Yeah. Maybe you're saying better. There's a tier one, which I think is those four teams. There's tier two, which is the Clippers, who I forgot. There's no tier three. Yeah. There's no tier four. We, like, dropped a tier five which is these teams fluttering around 500, and there's a ton of them. And they're hard to distinguish from each other. And, you know, I think the one thing we're going to have to be careful of the rest of the season, particularly in the Eastern Conference, is a team is going to put together three or four good games, and everyone is going to rush to anoint them. Oh, we now we figured out who the second-best team in the East is. And then they're going to lose their next three games. This keeps happening over and over again. And at some point, hopefully, we will learn our lesson. All right, so let's try to hypothesize on why this is the case. So here are some quick theories on it. Tell me where, which have validity or what yours is. One is that Adam Silver and the new David Stern's new collective uh, bargaining agreement has created a level of parity. Number two is that there really are very few st- true stars in the league and that those stars are on those main teams and that the rest of these stars, these Paul Georges and Jimmy Butlers who were anointing as stars, maybe aren't actually at that level and that that's where the drop-off lies. Or that the bottom of the league has gotten better, and so therefore there's not as much of a progression. What, what's your hypothesis on, on why we have this chasm between the elite and the pretty good? Well, rule I've been toying with lately is, first off, whenever you're looking to explain anything, just start with it's random. And then you kind of have to disprove that it's random as opposed to starting with there's a reason for it, and then eh, maybe it's random, like that being at the end. So... Absent, you know, this trend happening for a couple of years, because it wasn't like this really last year. Last year, I think you would say that there was a really deep second, you know, t- a middle class maybe of teams in the Western Conference who weren't as good as the Warriors, who were, were historically good last year, but were good enough to at least threaten them in the playoffs. So until we see it for more than a year, I'm inclined to say it's probably just noise. All right, so the big story, if I ask most people's question, they would say the Warriors and they would say the league's push towards small ball which I'm not buying. I think you know this. Anybody who's listened to my regular podcast knows. I might buy that we're moving towards skill ball. I frankly think the league's been doing that for a long, long time. If you go back, look at every playoff series, it gets more skilled and smaller players on the floor in every playoff series that this game has had for 25 years. And if I actually look around at most of the rosters in the league, there's actually still a ton of teams that are playing multiple bigs, and Draymond Green is incredible but he's, I'm not convinced that Draymond Green is a trend. I am convinced that Draymond Green is incredible, <laughs> but I'm not convinced that Draymond Green is a trend. Yeah, because I think what Draymond Green has done is given the Warriors the ability to play skill ball, and an even ext- in an extreme version of skill ball with him at center, because it's skill ball even when he's at power forward, but also not sacrifice any of the traditional playing big things because of the fact that he can protect the rim at six foot seven and can defend one through five. So yeah, I think he's more of an outlier in that regard. I mean, I I still think that there is an issue that it's, there is a gradual trend towards more quickness and less more emphasis on quickness and skill and less emphasis on size and strength. But that goes back you know, to 2004-05 and the rules reinterpretations then. And I think what happens, 
I'm going to go back to a piece I wrote like 10 years ago about the three-point line. And uh, people perceive that there's these various times where the three-pointer has become more important, like when they move well, the, when they moved the line, it actually did. But there's like these mo- flashpoint moments at the three-pointer. And last year was one of them with the Warriors. But when you actually look at the actual trend, three-point attempts have consist with rem- uh, increased with remarkable consistency since they came into the league. It's just that we only notice it at certain times. It's kind of like watching a child grow up. If you see them every day, you don't notice their growth as much as if you look away for a while, then you come back and like, wow, the league has gotten a lot more skilled if not necessarily smaller. Whereas if you're watching it every day, maybe it actually isn't that dramatic of a change at any one point. That's that really impressive by you who doesn't have children. <laughs> I have to tell you. I, ha- I have nephews. That's that's yeah. close enough. And so you're the one who stops by and sees them every few weeks and like, wow, what happened? <laughs> yeah. I got it. All right. So you actually just flipped the analogy on yourself. That was quite impressive. <laughs> I'm very impressed by that, Kevin. Uh, go back to a conversation we had probably a year ago, probably in the same hotel. Uh about when I asked you what's enough threes, and your answer then was just keep going until it's too many. <laughs> Is your answer still the, take? I think your answer was take ten percent more than you're taking now and see what happens. We've yet to have any number that says it's too many threes. Have you changed that at all? Yeah, I think my recollection is is like shoot five more threes than you are now, which is is close to a similar thing, but. Uh, I mean, it's tough to say because if you look at it, it's still the case that teams that increase their three-point attempts get better on offense. Charlotte is probably the best example of that this year. You know, they lost Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, and everyone thought that they were doomed. They've lost Al Jefferson, who was theoretically their best player, their all-star a couple years ago. And their offense is one of the most improved in league history. Now, that's partially because Kidd-Gilchrist didn't shoot any threes. Like, literally did not shoot any threes. But they got better shooting at almost every position, and all of a sudden, Kimball Walker became a more efficient offensive player. All of a sudden, Nick Batum became a more efficient offensive player before he was injured, and that's kind of sent them in the tank lately. So I still think there's that value out there. But there is a question that I don't have a good resolution for, which is, why isn't the league getting more efficient as a whole? That's that's the interesting question that I don't want to talk about too much on this podcast because I'm going to write about it at some point. But that sucks because that was going to be my question. I totally was suckering you into this and setting you up, and I was going to, I'm a total numbers believer, and I was going to flip on you and say, okay, as much as I believe the numbers and I'm buying the numbers, the one thing that's jumping out to me is that effective field goal percentage has not changed in this league almost at all. For those who don't know what effective field goal percentage is, it weighs three-point shooters. Shooting, So we've gone to the three, and effective field goal percentage has stayed virtually the same. Offensive efficiency has been at 102.7 per 100 possessions for like 10 years. Why are these numbers not moving if we're supposedly getting more efficient offensively with our shot selections? All right, I'll give you the short answer and the, the non-numerical the answer. Just so you know, I, un- I was setting you up not screwing your column. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know that I was right about that. That's, that's not, not your bad. Uh, no, you just tempted me into spoiling some of my column because of the fact that this is such a good conversation. So my theory is that basically it, absent intervention by the league and absent you know, the growing recognition of the value of the three, in the 90s what we saw was offense just plummeting. And even the into the early 2000s, I, I think of the 2003-04 season is kind of the nadir right before they changed the rules about contact and that Pistons-Lakers Pistons team that I think held teams to like 85 points per game in the playoffs or something ridiculous like that, even on a per-possession basis. So 
if you didn't have this, offenses would be at, like, just complete historical lows, at, like, pre-shot clock levels. And that the changes in the game and the increase in the three are what has allowed us to retain relative parity as defenses consistently get more sophisticated, because otherwise the defense will always be ahead of the offense. Have you watched videos of old NBA games? The defense is terrible. I mean, I watch old NBA games and think, I'm like yelling at guys, rotate, move, slide over, weak side. Which, in fairness, is partially because of the illegal defense rules of the time made it very difficult for them to do so. I I just finished the book uh, 48 Minutes, which is by Bob Ryan and Terry Pluto. When Ryan was covering the Celtics, Pluto was covering the Cavaliers. And they wrote about one random game that these two teams played in, I think, January 1987, from the perspective of both teams and the strategy and everything around it. It's a great book. Wow. Add it to my list. Yeah, definitely definitely do. I picked it up at Powell's here in Portland when I was uh, here. Are you saying it's probably not on Kindle? I think that the odds are against that. There's so many great things about this book, but one of my favorites, it's Lenny Wilkins complains at halftime, we're shooting too many threes, guys. Do you want to know how many threes they had attempted? Three. Four. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, I don't mean, like, it's incredible to go back and look rosters of teams and wonder, like, had someone embraced the three? I mean, first of all, Rudy Tomjanovich does not get anywhere near the respect that he deserves in the history of this game as one of the innovators. Because that Cassell, Ellie, Kenny Smith, Matt Maloney, Matt Bullard with Akeem in the middle team was way before its time. I love that you named all those guys and didn't mention Ori or Drexler. Yes. That was great. No, I mean, Ori was really the key to that team because, you know, I thought about, I wrote about this a fair bit a few years ago when Orlando started playing well with Richard Lewis at power forward and Dwight in the middle. And people were talking, oh, can this win in the playoffs? No one's ever done this before. It's like, no, Houston did exactly this. And you just missed it because of the fact that they had, you know, one of the greatest centers of all time in the middle. And part of the reason he was successful and was so effective is because they put so much shooting around him. And it was different then because it was more straight post-ups and you it was difficult for people to help because of those illegal defense rules, like I mentioned. But it was the same general philosophy. So, yeah, Rudy was way ahead of his time there. I mean, there's always been a few teams. We were talking earlier about the 90s Sonics, how good that they would be today uh, because you had Detlef Schrempf could swing, and he'd be a stretch four nowadays, playmaking four. Sean Kemp would be your five, and he could protect the rim. You know, uh, I mean, you also play Sam Perkins as a stretch five. It would be just an amazing team. Well, I remember I, I was saying to you, I talked to somebody, I think it was Thurl Bailey, former jazz player, who said that Jatlef Shrimp was the hardest guy he ever guarded. I, I, I think that's who. I'm trying to remember. I can't imagine who else it could have been that I had this conversation with. And I said, wow, like that's the last name I expect. He said he was without a weakness. He could dribble. He could pass. Like he, and, and that leads, all right, let's go back to the modern game. This is a question I asked you. We, we've had trends in this league. Uh, and, and every now and then this league deval- misses the value on something before it happens. So we missed the value on Kobe and Garnett when the high school players came in the league. And then, as you so astutely pointed out, we then overvalued them for a while. We missed international players and Drajan and Pyle Gasol and Dirk Nowitzki came over and they got underdrafted. And then we overdrafted Schizavilli and numerous others. Is Draymond Green the first of a trend where we have undervalued the versatile kind of playmaking four that's not a post-playing four, not a big, maybe a little undersized? Is he the first of a trend where we've missed the value? And, and then I guess the question is whether or not we, how fast we overvalue that player. Which I think may be very quickly because, you know, what makes Draymond Green so special, and I think he's now possibly a top five player in the league, 
is the fact that he can do all that, like I said earlier, and also be arguably the best defensive player in the league. So, you know, teams are going to look for that sort of player, but they're going to have to sacrifice one or the other end because there's not guys out there physically and mentally who are capable of doing both things like him. I guess the other guy you're probably going to be looking for is, are we going to start looking for the next Kawhi? And is there going to be a guy like that out there? And what is that? I mean, that's just <laughs> I mean, I think Kawhi Leonard is the greatest developmental case in the history of the game. Draymond Green is a misdiagnosing misdiagnosis of what skills he had that could play into this game. I don't I mean I, she's definitely shooting better and I know he shot 34% as a rookie, but still that happens. Kawhi Leonard is a play on development. We knew the things we knew Kawhi would be a great defensive player, but frankly, I think people thought Kawhi Leonard was Ronda Hellas Jefferson who just got drafted who can't shoot at all. And he has turned into, I mean, it's incredible what a shooter Kawhi Leonard is. Shooting 49% from three, yeah. I mean, I don't think that's going to last. I think that's likely to regress to the mean. But, yeah, he's come a long ways. And the other part of it is him making plays off the dribble now. I mean, you know, a couple years ago, yeah, he, he knew that the shooting was coming because of the fact that we had already seen the strides that he'd made from when he was in San Diego State. But I never saw him becoming a go-to guy for the Spurs on offense, and he's already done it in year five. So, So I think he's... Do you think he's a trend, or do you think he's the greatest case of... I mean, to your point of are we trying to find the next Kawhi Leonard, I think he's just a case of the greatest development of a player we've ever seen. Well, first off, this is why we said that they're going to be overvalued, because you start putting players into, oh, next Kawhi, next Draymond, when they're not actually that. You start forcing this on players that are unworthy of it. But the, I think there may be a larger trend, and uh, Lane Vashro, who wrote some great draft stuff and now is working uh, in the in uh, pro sports uh, is a consultant. Well, well, you don't want to say who, do you? I, I don't know if I'm allowed to reveal that yet. I think I heard it was on his LinkedIn, but I don't want to be the guy. Anyways. So if you really need to know, just search the guy. Yeah. So the, the theory that he has put forward is if you look at a lot of the best players in the NBA, there are situations where you started out with the athleticism and those guys developed the jumper, which, I mean, that's not nothing rocket science about that. But what's really interesting is – a lot of those guys have done it later than I think we would typically think of. So Jimmy Butler comes out of Marquette. He's supposedly a low upside guy because of the fact that he's a four-year college guy, which the numbers do say. I mean, I think that people take... The, t- the four-year college draft, for those who don't know this, the four-year college draftee, particularly that college draftee who only had success his junior and senior year, is one of the most reliable trends on how to find a draft bust that there is. I mean, there there are very few things out there. Frank Kaminsky is, was not terrible his freshman and sophomore year, but he wasn't great. He might bucket a little bit. But Wesley Johnson didn't bucket. Epe Udo didn't bucket. And there, Jimmer Fredette didn't bucket. There, that is the tre- best singular trend out there to find out who's going to fl- flop in the draft is the four-year senior who only had successes last year. So – Jimmy Butler doesn't quite – was Jimmy Butler fit that, and he's bucking that trend? Because I don't remember his freshman, sophomore year at Marquette. He was JC. Oh. So I, mean, I, I don't – Probably hard to tell. Yeah, I don't remember he was there his sophomore year. So I'm going to compare him now to Gary Payton II at Oregon State, who I'm a big fan of and also went the JC route. Uh, but, yeah, you know, so the situation is if you can find – do you just draft all of these athletes and hope that you can teach them to shoot and buy really good shooting coaches like San Antonio has with Chip England? Is that is that the uh, the long term strategy? Philadelphia's tried to do happen. I mean, Philadelphia's drafted just every athlete in the world and try uh, second round picks, and maybe there's a level where they still have to be first round talent to get right. this to work uh, to some extent. 
Right, and I don't know, you know, about their shooting development and that aspect of it, if if it can compare. Like San Antonio, obviously, is, you know, off the charts in this regard. So, I, yeah, I don't know if that's the trend, but I, I definitely see people starting to move that way. I guess. All right, we started to have this conversation before we did the podcast, kind of randomly, because you and I just sit around and talk basketball. What's a good coach in this league? I. That's a that's an excellent question. I mean, I, you. In what the, in specifically, first off, what's the background of a good coach? And then to answer that, you have to pick out who are the good coaches. And I think that kind of seems like it changes from from month to month, doesn't it? I mean, Brad Stevens has been thought of as this great coach, and everyone I talked to in the league thinks he's great. And then I run the number the other day. He's 29th in the league coming out of timeouts. I thought that was what great coaches did. I thought that they ran really good plays out of timeouts, that that was part of what coaching is, that that's how you impact games. And he's twenty. And frankly, his team's five hundred. I'm not sure if it's you know no one. That's kind of a mystery team on what having having ten players who are above average on your roster does. But what is like? I got Rick Carlisle's a good coach, and I got Greg Popovich is a pretty good coach. I frankly thought David Blatt was fabulous in the finals last year when most of the league was criticizing him. I thought he was brilliant. I don't what is, I don't know. I, and I also will criticize us the level of groupthink that goes on in our collective process of reporters is disgusting it's as though one or two people who we all respect because we all get along and are similar ilks because we're basketball junkies announce somebody as a good coach and all of us follow without i think the appropriate amount of critical thinking to it well obviously when i say someone is a good coach that's just a fact at that point yeah, and everyone right. should accept that as their opinion that's the, that's the confidence of kevin pelton <laughs> 10 years or so after the kid i met that first worked for me <laughs> we, were, we were joking about that with the uh, ESPN NBA rank history, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point. Uh, did Why didn't everyone just go with my answers for that? I mean, I guess they maybe didn't know them, so that's that's the fair excuse. Now, uh, you know, I think the other aspect of it is so much of how we evaluate coaches is based off in-game coaching, and not even just in-game coaching, but coaching in the last two minutes. And the one thing that I think is generally true is we obsess over decisions that really don't ultimately op- impact your chance of winning that much. Like our mutual friend Nate Duncan uh, hates the quick two, and I totally understand why he despises that decision at the end of the games. I think it is absolutely not the way to go, and that most of the time you should shoot a three-pointer when you're down three, unless you can get a layup, because of the fact that most of the times the quick two is not actually all that quick or a two. That's the problem with it. But... The fact is, if you're in a situation where you're down three or down four with 20 seconds left, I thought the game is over anyway. I mean, win probability really shows that we obsess over things that had very little probability yeah. of changing games. Yeah, it's the marginal details. And the other thing that I think happens a lot of the time, uh, this happened again last night as we're doing this podcast. Cleveland played Dallas, and Cleveland went small with Kevin Love at center, which I think is a great lineup for them. And Rick Carlisle had the situation where he had to choose between staying with his starting lineup and keeping both Zaza Pachulia and Dirk Nowitzki out there, which, you know, one of those guys has to defend Love on the perimeter. One of them, has, someone has to defend, I guess, Amon Shumpert uh, with Chandler Parsons defending uh, LeBron James. And then at the other end, or, you know, you go small, is he ultimately did in overtime, put Dirk at the five, have zero rim protection whatsoever, but you do have another offensive player on the court. And he got killed for the choice he made. But I feel like if he had, for going small, and I feel like if he had stayed big, 
Cleveland ultimately would have gotten really great shots out of having that small lineup out there, and then people would have criticized him for that. There's a lot of like situations where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Especially if you're playing, facing the Warriors this year, that's another one. Like Again, Black got killed for going to that Lovett center lineup because it didn't work against Draymond Green at center. Well, guess what? Almost no lineup works against Draymond Green at center. Well, so, it, and, and to your point, there's this inkling that whatever the other choice was was right. Right. And that's not actually usually the case. I, I will tell you, having the in, I mean, the one thing that hopefully I bring to this podcast is I've got access that most people don't have. So much of this coaching is how you talk to a guy at practice. So much of this is what you, you know, whether you rest the players on the right day, whether you drive them two and a half hours in a practice on the wrong day, whether you, the feel, you know, I see it with Quinn Snyder, the unbelievable feel, like I'll have his practice sheet in front of him, me, and be looking there watching practice going, wow, he's got 30 more minutes left, and there's no way he's getting 30 minutes out of these guys. And all of a sudden he just blows the whistle, brings everyone in, and says, all right, we're done. And the read of realizing when the eyes on your players are glossed over and that the fatigue level's kicked in and they're not gaining anything. I actually think that part of, frankly, getting your team to play hard, like, it's such, we don't talk about it enough, but playing hard in this league over an 82-game schedule is so hard to get your team to do. I think that's so much more of coaching than what we analyze on Twitter and analyze every day. Yeah, one of my all-time favorite Bill James columns has nothing to do with statistics. And he wrote it on ESPN.com about 15 years ago. After you post this, I'll, I'll post the link. I'll find it on archive.com because I don't think it's on the actual website anymore. Uh, and it's about how basically teams and, and managers, in this case in baseball, make so many decisions in every year that you can't possibly hold all of them in your head and evaluate all of them. And so what you do instead is you pick out a handful that meet whatever opinion you want to have of this person. And I think that also speaks to the group thing. Because if you want to argue that Coach X is a terrible coach, there's three things you can point to that easily. If you want to argue that they're a great coach, there's three things you can point to that easily. And it's just we kind of pick and choose which of those arguments to make depending on the prevailing wind. Well, I think there's two coaches that have been very interesting that have been just murdered over the last, not literally, over the last 10 years as coaches in this league. One was Vinny Del Negro, and the other was Scott Brooks. The Clippers have really been virtually no better under Doc Rivers than they were under Vinny Del Negro, and they should be because they're older and more experienced. And I would tell you, I've watched the Thunder a lot this year. It doesn't look any different to me than everything Scott Brooks got criticized for while his offense was ranked in the top three every year, by the way. I think you'd probably add Monty Williams in New Orleans oh, yeah. to that list. Well, and Monty Williams would fit into my play hard category. New Orleans played hard every night for Monty Williams. And I will admit that I'm one who watched Monty Williams run Omer Ashik, Anthony Davis cross screens down below saying, what are you doing? Why are you running that? Just, like, I, I absolutely fit into the Monty Williams camp of, like, this guy, it doesn't work. And yet, you know what? They played hard every night. And now I read Alvin Gentry's quotes, and three times in the last two weeks, Alvin Gentry's been talking about, we've got to play hard, we've got to do this. That, that's a much bigger issue playing hard, as I pointed out earlier, than actually whether you get the X's and O's on a out-of-bounds play correct. All right, can I give you a theory here? Yeah, so go to the so the Vinny Del Negro, Scott Brooks, Monty Williams theory, which all are a little different. Yeah, this is this is actually a specifically a Monty Williams, Elvin Gentry theory. And this, it speaks to a larger truth, though. My theory is that Monty Williams is very good at getting the most out of limited players which is very similar to Nate McMillan, who was the coach he worked under in Portland before he got hired by New Orleans. 
Like you could give Nate McMillan a starting front a starting front court of Art Long and Peja Drobniak and Vladi Radmanovic, and you know what? He's going to get that team to win forty plus games somehow. Or Jerome James, Vitali Potapenko, and Nick Collison yeah. as your bigs. Yeah, we saw that one year. Danny Fortson, shout out to the baddest man in pigtails. So like Monty Williams was perfect for last year's Pelicans and this year's Pelicans ultimately because of the fact that they were decimated by injury. Now, if you give Monty Williams the healthy New Orleans team when they had all of their pieces last year, he's maybe not going to get the most out of those guys because of the fact that, you know, uh, I think defensively they were a little vanilla and that sort of thing. If you give Elvin Gentry like a full strength New Orleans roster that he's never gotten to work with this year, I think he's probably better with that team. But Monty is better at coaxing the most out of limited guys. And that that's where that starts to speak to the larger truth of, there's not just one ranking of coaches from best to worst. Just like players, they have strengths and weaknesses, and there are good fits and worse fits for them. So, you know, sometimes you can be a good coach and still deserve to get fired because, unfortunately, you're just not right anymore. Might be Kevin McHale in Houston. Could be. I mean, that's uh, an even more complex one, I think so, in terms of getting back to, to playing hard every night. But that now is is the roster that you've been given set up to play hard every night, or is the leadership on the team so flawed, let's say, that uh, it makes that impossible? Napa it takes a lot to get excited about a bag, but most bags can't save you 20% on auto parts. That's 20% off headlamps, 20% off oil filters, 20% off virtually anything you can fit inside the 99-cent Napa reusable bag. So tell your buddies there's a bag they just have to check out. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores while supplies last. Minimum three items. Exclusions apply. Offer ends 10 17